Good evening, certainly, and how thankful we can be for the privilege God has granted each of us to assemble tonight. As has already been mentioned, and certainly by way of the wonderful expressions of many of those songs that we've sung together, we're certainly hopeful each has had a good first day of the week, and what a better way could there possibly have been to assemble on an occasion like this one as the shades of the sunshine draw about us to give further consideration to worship of our Heavenly Father. We are thankful for the presence of each and every one this evening, and we hope each, of course, will be uplifted, encouraged, and benefited by the opportunity to offer worship and homage to our Heavenly Father. The title of the lesson, as you no doubt have already noticed, has to do with recognition, and not only general recognition, but namely that special recognition after the occasion of death. Many have been the questions that perhaps have been asked over the years about, shall we know one another in heaven? Will there be identification following the reality of that which is your deceased or mine? Will there be a general appreciation of acknowledgement with regard to those that we know, perhaps have cherished in days long since gone past? It does seem the Bible reveals to you and to me a number of interesting thoughts and ideas about that that leads, it seems, inevitably to a conclusion. And I would ask tonight that we give some thought to that very matter. Shall we know one another in heaven? As we begin that particular study, isn't it true that the sacred scriptures offer such a tremendous reservoir of hope? You and I find, it seems, from really the first chapter of Genesis all the way to the 22nd chapter of Revelation, the opportunity of seeing the grandeur, the greatness, and majesty of God as He extends a powerful hand of hope, anxious for the human family to grasp a hold of it, anxious for the human family to embed that hope within them and to live. Didn't Paul say in Romans 8, 24, we are saved by hope? We each, I think, can appreciate the tremendous influence that hope can have upon us. That individual who nonetheless senses a degree of hope often will get over an illness somewhat sooner than the one whose spirit has drooped and who has given up. As you notice on that particular slide also, no doubt the grandest hope of all though and that which is hanged before you and for me is that hope of heaven. We know so very well that as the Scriptures describe that lovely, that blessed, that wonderful place, it truly is a place that is the redeemed of the faithful. That location in which God and the Son and the Spirit all there reign in absolute supremacy. The last two chapters of the Revelation said it before us in a picturesque and rather dramatic and vivid way. And as it does so, of course, that is the grand finale in many ways of the sacred text, isn't it? The difficulties of Revelation chapters 19 and 20 are past. That lake burning with fire and brimstone is not the scene of chapters 21 and 22. The difficulties of the false prophet, the beast, and all those followers of them are all done away with. In those last two chapters, we see the blessed Jerusalem coming down out of the sweetness above, and we see it's the faithful, the redeemed, you and me, those whose lames are in the book of life those who in fact have been washed in the blood of the Lamb, and those who are prepared to partake of the marriage supper of the Lamb. No finer, sweeter thing could there be than to close the Scriptures that way. It is the way, of course, the Holy Spirit chose to do it, and that is the exquisite and explicit hope that is resting before all of us. It is with that in mind tonight that we then can give some appreciation to thoughts like these. 
The Bible, of course, has so very much to say, calling up us to appreciate that which death really is. We do, in fact, see if we may summarize at least some of the thoughts on that slide rather briefly. Death, of course, is a certainty that you and I are well apprised of. We maybe on many occasions have faced it in our own families. Those whom we love, grandparents, great-grandparents, or otherwise. And on those occasions, maybe as tears streamed down our face. Maybe then we wondered, will I ever see him or her again? Will there ever be a time that he and I will know one another and enjoy a fellowship that will last throughout the ages? Will there ever be a time in which the fullness of reunion, and some have even called it that very thing, haven't they, the greatest of all reunions? You'll notice on that slide furthermore that the Bible has much to say about that which death really is. Many of our current day and many of our modern era have a misconception, quite frankly, about what death is because they have a misconception of what, about what life is. They think mean things very different than what the sacred scriptures teach. You and I are body, soul, and spirit, 1 Thessalonians 5.23. In so doing, there is an immortal counterpart of you and me, a part that will never cease to be a part that will never die, a part that will never be annihilated, a part that will never cause to be other than that which exists. You'll notice as Jesus made that statement in Matthew 10, 28, didn't He on that occasion say, Better it is to fear Him which can kill body and soul in hell, but man, what can He do? you notice as the Lord made a statement like that one, doesn't it cause us to appreciate that immortal spirit has been a fundamental prescription even from the earliest saga of the book of Genesis? And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul, reads Genesis 2 verse 7. Zechariah 12 verse 1 acclaims in clear-cut terms and tones, It's the God of heaven that formeth the spirit of man within him. That spirit then that is you and that is me leads us to observe the following matter so clearly. This body that is the subject of such great intensity and often the subject of such great interest is of course composed of those same elements that dirt is made of, the dust of the ground if you please. God expressly told that to Adam in the long ago, didn't he, in Genesis 3.19, By the sweat of thy face shalt thou eat bread. Till thou return unto the dust, for out of it wast thou taken, for dust thou art, and unto dust shalt thou return. Solomon in his wisdom echoed a similar sentiment in Ecclesiastes 12, verse number 7, didn't he? When we give reflection then that there's coming a time to appreciate what then death is. Life is simply defined in the following reality, isn't it? It is that period of time in which the Spirit of you and me, inhabits and dwells within this physical tabernacle we call the body. When the time comes, that spirit departs the body. That's the reality you and I call death. For that body is no longer alive. That which animated it has left. That which made it alive is no longer there. Now that certainly is not to say that that spirit is dead itself. It just means it has gone to dwell elsewhere awaiting a grander and more glorious reality. That body that you and I see behind, without the Spirit to inhabit it, without the Spirit to illuminate it, without the Spirit to animate it, that body is said to be dead, isn't it? 
when you and I think about then that basic reality of death, isn't that what James defined it to be in James 2.26? For as the body without the spirit is dead, so too faith without works is dead also. It is true that as James discussed, faith on the one hand and works on the other, isn't it grand that he helped attach to it that careful and powerful thought of what death is? There are some in our world, and maybe it isn't the most comfortable conversation topic for you or for me, but nonetheless, we can, by virtue of our attachment to God through the Son of God, appreciate that death need not hold out for you and for me the fear that it does for those unprepared, for those not ready, for those who have no hope. Wasn't that, in fact, what Paul wrote in 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 13 to 18? He spoke about those that have no hope. And he said, we unlike they. We are ready and prepared to give thought to this. The Lord Himself shall descend with a shout, with a voice of the archangel, with a trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. And did He not then say, we shall forever be with them? May I submit to you then, it's not that the Bible quashes our hope and encourages it. It gives us the only realistic hope we can ever have of the reality of what lies beyond death. Philosophers, sociologists, and others literally for ages have discussed, argued, and wrestled with the thought of what happens after death. If you read some of their writings, if you read some of that which they put forth, it's almost laughable. When you and I know the truth of the matter is in the book that's resting in your lap and mine. A book that details without any assertions, any discrepancies, any kind of problems, what it is that takes place after death. And so it is, as you come to the bottom of that slide, we're prepared to see then that when that occasion of death does befall you or me or yea, others that we may cherish and love, we quickly get the following observation and the following ideas. Might I invite you to look at just a sampling of some passages that echo so powerfully that thought we stated a moment ago. In Genesis 35 verse 18, on that occasion Rachel was giving birth to her last child. You and I know his name would ultimately be Benjamin. But remember she died in the process of giving birth. But the text very interestingly says that as her soul was departing, her soul was departing. That was the means whereby, of course, she met her dissolution. She passed away. But isn't the Bible interesting in that it makes a parenthetical observation? That happened as her soul was departing. Notice her soul didn't die. Notice her soul is not such that it was annihilated. It just departed the body. Look at 1 Kings 17, verses 17 to 23, when there Elijah had the privilege by the power of God to raise one. And the text is very clear. The Spirit came and re-entered into the body of that little boy. Isn't that interesting? It was the return of that Spirit, the re-inhabiting of the body that then reanimated it and made the circumstance to be alive. Beyond that, you'll notice in Psalm 90, verse 10, David, the marvelous psalmist on that occasion, did he not simply say, as he spoke about, the nature of what life is? All I need to do is note three words of that verse, and you'll remember it well. We fly away. 
You remember that he had discussed on that occasion about the days of our strength being threescore years and ten, and if by reason of strength they be fourscore years, yet is our days filled with sorrow and we fly away. Sometimes we sing a song in our book, I'll fly away. When we sing that, do we think about those words? Do we keep in mind the thought that there is coming a day if the Lord delays His coming, we indeed shall fly away. Maybe one final thought in Acts chapter 7, verse 59. On that occasion, as Stephen was being stoned to death, does it not say he looked up and of course saw the Son of God and his spirit departed? May you and I never forget in light of all those passages that it seems that statement is then clear. When there is that separation, the spirit no longer inhabits the body. That is that reality that you and I term death. The body is said to be dead. The spirit, far from it though, dwells perfectly well elsewhere. Isn't it interesting in light of all those things that the Bible goes on to detail for us where it is that spirit abides and where it is that it dwells awaiting that glorious return of the Son of God. The Bible, in fact, defines that location as a place called Hades. H-A-D-E-S in the Greek text. This place called Hades, we might in fact be initially observant of this. The King James translators chose to record three different words with the same English word. That didn't always a favor to us, admittedly, because Hades and hell are not the same thing. We notice here the word Hades is simply the abode of disembodied spirits, the receptacle, if you please, of disembodied spirits. When those spirits depart the body, they arrive and dwell at a place called Hades. And in fact, even Acts 2.31 makes reference to it. There it's also prominent because it has reference to do, in fact, with the very death of our Savior. When Jesus was hanging on the cross and He met His death about 3 o'clock in the afternoon, the text is very clear in saying that He gave up the ghost. Where did the ghost go? Where did his spirit dwell for that three days from then until Sunday morning? Peter gave us the information. Acts 2.31 says he dwelled in Hades. Even the spirit of our Lord dwelled in Hades for that temporary period. Isn't it interesting then to behold that here is a place, here is a receptacle, here is a location in which the spirits of all departed await, of course, that second coming of our Master. It is the case beyond that. It might be fair to observe that Hades itself is not permanent. That is to say, it is not a place of ongoing abiding. There is coming a day when Hades will be emptied. There is coming an occasion in which Hades itself will have all those spirits currently in it. They will fly out of it, if you please. Many occasions in Scripture identify the reality of that event. We call it the general resurrection, don't we? What was it the Lord said in John 5, verses 28 and 29? Marvel not at this, for the hour is coming when all that are in the grave shall hear His voice, and shall come forth they that have done good unto the resurrection of life, and they that have done evil unto the resurrection of damnation. Amazing, isn't it, that? the Lord was clear enough to say all that are in the graves. 
But you and I recognize that those bodies that have been interred, those bodies that have been planted in the bosom of earth, the only means whereby they will be resurrected is if that spirit which was that individual re-inhabits a kind of body and they come forth. That was the very kind of conversation that Jesus had with Martha, was it, in John 11, beginning in verse 24. As Jesus and Martha spoke, just to excerpt a part of that conversation, you may recall Martha said, Lord, if thou hadst been here, my brother had not died. She knew there was enough power and sufficiently within the Lord that there would have been no death. Jesus could have cured him. Jesus was quick to reply, Lazarus shall rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Martha said, I know that. That was not a surprise to her. It was not a shock in any sense. Jesus then said in verses 25 and 26, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live again. The Lord said, I am the resurrection and the life. We recognize full well then that just as surely as God had the power to raise His own Son on that Sunday morning, we're told in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 20 and following, He has the power to raise all of us as well. That kind of power is inherited so easily in the statements at the bottom of that slide. You'll notice in particular at the Lord's second coming, on the occasion of that general resurrection, there soon thereafter, of course, will be the occasion of the judgment. Everyone, in the language of Romans chapter 10, in fact, Romans chapter 12, verse 10, so then every one of us shall give account of himself to God. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 10 says it like this, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that everyone may receive the things done in his body according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. We can so easily see then, can't we? The occurrence and the reality of all those things bring us perhaps to the following. We hinted at it earlier, but let's raise the question again. So you and I well know that countless billions of people have lived on this planet since it was created in the, in the record of Genesis chapter 1. And we know so very well that there are associations, friendships, kinships, close family ties... The question then prompts us to ask, what about recognition after death? Will you and I know one another in heaven? Or will it be a dream-like existence in which we are there and we know that we're there, but we know nobody else with perhaps the exception of the Lord Himself? What does the Bible have to say about these kinds of things? Is there any information whereby you and I might reach a conclusion? Might I invite you to consider just a few of these things? First of all, what about that thought of remembrance? In Matthew 7, verse 22, as well as Revelation 6, verses 9 and 10, and even that story, that record, that parable of the rich man and Lazarus of Luke chapter 16, it does seemingly indicate very clearly that there is a degree of memory you and I will remember some opportunities that we had on earth. It seems, doesn't it, that in fact that will be one of the sorest and one of the most regretful matters of all for anyone who is lost. Thinking about the opportunities that may have been enjoyed to obey the gospel but never did it. 
the opportunities to hear the tender pleas and requests and the prayers on behalf of others that were uttered and yet to never have responded. That surely will make eternity seem even longer, won't it? And yet, when you and I think about the nature of passages like them, that Revelation chapter 6 does highlight that there, even the Lord Himself, under the banner of that fifth and sixth seal as they were opened, pointed out so well, wasn't it? The powerful reality that they were able to remember. But let's look at one step further. I have chosen to highlight in boldface type some particular wordings found throughout the sacred scriptures. I would ask you to notice the way in which these words appear. First of all, this phrase, gathered to his people. That phrase is not just made once or twice of the Old Testament, is it? It's made with respect to Abraham in Genesis 25.8. It's made with respect to Isaac in Genesis 35.29. It's made with respect to Moses in Deuteronomy 32.50. It's made with respect to Ishmael in Genesis 25.17. It's made with respect to Jacob in Genesis 49, verses 29 and following. And finally, it's made with respect to Aaron also in Deuteronomy 32. The question that may well appear to us is then what did the inspired writer and what did the Holy Spirit have in mind as he used that usage of words? Abraham was gathered to his people. Now all of those six references occur as it relates to the death of those individuals. And so there are some who might be tempted to think, well that just means he was buried near his kinfolks. He was buried close to where dad or granddad was. It cannot mean that. For after all, consider Moses. God buried him and no one to this day knows where it is. In Deuteronomy 32 and 33 and 34. Similarly, as we give record to those others, each and every one of those references highlight that there's a reunion between these individuals and those who had passed on before them. And it was no reference to the placement of the physical body in interment. It was a reference to a reunion of gladness and gloriousness beyond with those faithful who had passed on before them. Doesn't that fill our hearts with hope and excitement? The opportunity to in fact reacquaint ourselves with those loved ones who have passed on before us? As you give thought to each and every one of them, again, appreciate that there was a span of many hundreds of years between the six of them listed, and yet... As all of them made reference to, they were gathered to their people. That isn't the only reference that seems so very clear to a grand reunion in the days beyond. Consider this other phrase as well. The statement that David made. We well remember that David was overwhelmed in sin at one point. He committed adultery with Bathsheba. He even committed murder against her husband. But we well recall that Bathsheba became pregnant, of course. And as the time for the birth of that child drew near, problems arose. And we may remember that even David mourned greatly for the child. And we do see, do we not, in 2 Samuel 12, that David makes this following monumental statement. As the child, of course, was to die. David himself, even in the presence of fasting and even in the difficulties that came emotionally to him, he said, speaking with respect to that child, he shall not return to me, I shall go to him. 
What does that statement indicate? There was a one-way motion. The child was not going to return to David, but David was clear in saying, I shall go to him. He did not say it. He did not refer to it in any other generic fashion as if that spirit had an identity. And David said, I'll see him again. I'll go to him. Maybe another consideration drawn from the statements of Job himself in Job 19, verses 25 through 27. Job was again in the midst, as you and I well know, of a dire set of circumstances. He had lost his children. His possessions in many ways had been greatly taken from him. Even his own health was suffering mightily. As we arrive at the 19th chapter of that book, we find Job on that occasion speaking about the great hope that he had. A hope in which he himself recognized that though worms would consume his body, he said, yet shall I stand, and yet shall I take part in the resurrection, and yet I shall see him. He knew very well that though the body might deteriorate, and of course it shall return to the dust if the Lord delays his coming. But Job nonetheless was filled with the hopefulness that permitted him to recognize he would stand on some glorious and grand day and he would see the one that's his Redeemer. Don't you and I look forward to seeing the Lord face to face? Tom Holland, as I recall, said something much like that in one of the lessons of the meeting back in May. The excitement and the thrill that filled his heart to look face to face at the one who died for him. I'm sure many of us feel exactly the same way. The hopelessness was replaced with hopefulness. The fact that we once were doomed and in ruin can be replaced with an energetic and hopeful life filled with majesty and filled with desire. Job surely, in those words on that particular occasion, does help us see he longed for a reunion. You'll notice amongst the statements there, we can even look additionally at even this one. This is the text that Cale read earlier tonight in our hearing, taken from Matthew chapter 12, verses 38 to 41. Jesus on that occasion, as we well remember, was teaching a very poignant lesson, a lesson that had to do in some ways with the judgment on the one hand, but in another way a rebuke to the people on the other. In particular, he made the observation about the people of Capernaum, and notice that even the people of Nineveh would rise in judgment and condemn this generation because a greater than Jonah is here. Pause with me to ponder the following observations. The Lord expressly said that those of Nineveh would rise in the judgment and condemn that present generation of the Lord's day for their unbelief, in particular because one greater than Jonah was in their midst. That seems easily, doesn't it, to make the following conclusion. The people of Nineveh were to have some memory. They would be able to appreciate the status of their former life and that which was their lot while upon earth. And in comparison, they would rise in judgment and have a means whereby the very judgment as it blessed them would condemn those of Capernaum seems again as if there was to be an acknowledgement. There was to be a recognition, if you please. The Lord wasn't finished. He even made mention in that same passage about the queen of the south. Remember, she came from afar to visit with Solomon in 1 Kings chapter 10. 
And as she did, she even admitted, the half hasn't even been told to me. Jesus was quick to say, the queen of the south is going to rise in judgment as well and condemn this generation because a greater than Solomon is here. As great as Solomon was, in a, in a proverbial way, he wasn't able to hold a candle to Jesus of Nazareth, was he? And you and I can then see that both these references seem to indicate that. These individuals were to have an acknowledgement of memory and identity, and even in the judgment, that it would appear in a very realistic way. Perhaps finally, you'll appreciate that there was a rather moving and compelling scene on the Mount of Transfiguration in Matthew 17. Wasn't it there that Jesus was transfigured before, his, before Peter, James, and John? And interestingly, we remember Peter wished to, in fact, build three tabernacles, one for thee, one for Moses, and one for Elias. Isn't it still interesting? Peter recognized both those individuals, though they had been dead for well over a millennium. Interesting, isn't it? Here was Peter able to recognize the appearance of these two, though they were in spirit form. Moses, on the one hand, been dead for roughly 1,500 years Elijah, been dead roughly 1,100 years, and yet Peter recognized both of them. Doesn't that just heighten our consideration of the marvelous recognition that apparently will be our blessing after the occasion of death? Perhaps one final observation. The statements of the inspired apostle, the peerless one himself. In 2 Corinthians 4, verses 14 and following, we notice that Paul made this admission. He made observation of the fact that even on that day of judgment, he would be presented with the Corinthians as if that was a meaningful and grand moment. But to say he'd be presented with them seems to suggest that they would know him and he would know them. Later he has said something similar with respect to the Thessalonians, didn't he, in the book of 1 Thessalonians. Perhaps it is in light of that that we can make this series or these brief observations of conclusion. We were asking the question, what about recognition after death? We seemingly think, at least many do, that it's a, to be a dreamlike state in which there will be no identification, no recognition. The Bible seems to teach just the opposite. It teaches, doesn't it, that we will in fact know the faithful. We will be apprised by way of acknowledgement of their presence. It does, though, seem to say this to us. When we contemplate heaven and we contemplate the glory that surrounds that place, what if there's some loved one that's not there? What if someone whom we've cherished in life Someone we've prayed so earnestly about, hoping that they would turn their life over to the Master, but they never did it. It would appear that since Revelation does describe heaven as that glorious abode of unending joy and a place of unending appreciation of that which is the Master and the happiness that comes with it, it would appear that God will take care of that somehow. That is to say, the sadness that otherwise would be ours at the fact that a loved one is not there. Apparently, we're told in Revelation 21, the Lord God will be all the light and all the joy and happiness that we shall ever need. How He will take care of that, I cannot say that I know, but it would appear that He does. 
I hope tonight as we've discussed, at least in passing, this part about recognition after death, we can all look forward to a grand reunion. Of course, each of this is predicated on us obeying the gospel here. We surely can't look forward to that if we aren't prepared to die in the Lord. Revelation 14, 13 still says, Blessed are the dead which die in the Lord. From henceforth, yea, saith the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors and their works do follow them. The question then that comes is, are you and am I ready to leave this life in the Lord, having obeyed His will, and thus look forward to the grandest reunion of all the ages of all the time? It is true, isn't it, in Revelation 7, that a portrait, a picture is given in which the 144,000, a figurative number representative of all the faithful, and an innumerable multitude are there. They've all been washed in the blood of the Lamb. Have you? Have you been baptized for the remission of your sins? If you have, you know what an overwhelming occurrence that was, and you know what a change in life it made. If you haven't, why do you delay? Jesus died for you. He died such that you can be forgiven of your sins, have them remitted, taken away from you, never to experience the guilt of them again. If you have never rendered that obedience, there will not be a better night than this one. You could leave this building smiling on your face, ready to pillow your head tonight in security, in safety, and with an ease that you have not known before. If you have been a member of the body of Christ faithfully, but you no longer are, problems have developed, matters have erupted, your life has become frenetic and chaotic, why not come back to your first love tonight? Redirect your soul toward that which is that greatest reunion of all. Our hope is in the gospel, which of course leads us to heaven, Colossians 1 verse 5. Tonight, if we could be of assistance to anyone, we would invite you to let us know in the way we can help. Brother Jeff has chosen this hymn of encouragement. And right now, today is the day of salvation. Won't you come while together we stand and sing?